everybody, and welcome to From Plum Creek with Love, a little house on the prairie podcast. I'm your host, John Hernandez, and here we are at the season finale, part one. It's a little funny that the today's episode does start off with a very, very rainy setting, considering that here in the Pacific Northwest, in the Portland, Oregon area, we have actually had the wettest April on record, which is a complete 180 from the previous year. I believe like in late March or early April was the last time that we had rain. And then we didn't get rain again until like September, October. And that is a little unusual for this area. But I love the clouds and I love the rain. So I'm not complaining. It's when you throw the wind into all of that, that's when I start to complain. When I used to live inside the Portland, Oregon area, I definitely biked everywhere. Dry days and rainy days. And it was never an issue unless the wind was blowing. And when it comes to biking in the rain, I have no problem with that. I only had a problem when my rain gear reached its thresholds and the water started to come through and down into my socks. And with every pedal, I would just get that squish in my shoes and would just make me swear. But it also made me bike faster. And with that being said, let's get started on today's recap. Today's episode is entitled Gold Country and debuted on April 4th, 1977. The episode was written by John Hawkins and B.W. Sanfure and directed by... Michael Landon. Here comes that rainy day feeling again. We began on, it. it's supposed to be rain, but it looks like a monsoon. This rain is thick. I can barely identify our location. We're at the bridge, and there's a shadowy figure entering into the screen. It's Charles. And he is making his way over to the mercantile. Inside, we find Mr. Olson sitting inside the parlor, and that's when the bell rings and Charles enters the mercantile. He has come in to pay off his bill, which makes Mr. Olson very jubilant. Also noticing Charles's soggy clothes, Mr. Olson then offers Charles a chance to warm up slash dry off in the parlor. He says that with one to two customers a day, it seems a little unreasonable to heat up the storefront. With only $4.25 remaining on the bill, Charles pays that off. But now he needs some baking soda and some pipe tobacco. Mr. Olson apologizes because they are out of the baking soda and says due to the rain, which is one for the history books according to him, it has been lasting for far too long and is actually driving some of the residents away from Walnut Grove. In fact, looking at his ledger, Mr. Olson is left in a little bit of remorse because he is left with having $106 left in debts as 14 different families have left Walnut Grove. Hearing this news, Charles states, yeah, the fields are nothing but a sea of mud, There are going to be no crops for him or for anyone this year. It's a sad goodbye between the two of them. We cut to outside the post office. 
the stagecoach is pulling away and Mr. Edwards has once again returned. It looks as though he's wearing a yellow raincoat at this time. Mr. Edwards shares his experience of working over in Mankato and he calls it a nothing job and apparently he lost it because the boss's son-in-law moved back to the area. Oh, it should be noted that Grace, Charles, and Mr. Edwards are not standing in the rain. They're standing on the porch of the post office. Mr. Edwards even proclaims the entire state is submerged. However, Mr. Edwards has a plan slash idea and invites Charles and family over for dinner. However, he didn't bother to ask Grace, who is standing right there, if it's okay. Because who is making dinner? Grace. Charles accepts the invite and says that they will swim over later. We cut to Plum Creek. Caroline is tending the fire. It's a nice sweater vest that she's wearing. And notices out the window that Charles has come home and is heading directly into the barn. She grabs a shawl and heads out there as well. Charles, pulling out a folded up piece of burlap, mentions that he is getting ready to put the cover back on the wagon and then shares the dinner invite with Caroline. Hearing that Mr. Edwards is back in town, Caroline inquires, I thought he had a job in Mankato. He lost it, Charles proclaims in a rather flustered state. Caroline can tell that Charles is really starting to stress out, and we come to find out that it has been raining for two months. Caroline says not to worry. The root cellar is full, the Saudi house pantry slash the prairie Airbnb, and they also got ham, bacon, and salt pork. Charles states the food that is in the root cellar will last them about two to three months, but in the meantime, their grain bin is almost empty, and the hay is also almost gone. Caroline inquires if Charles is thinking about heading out to find work again. Charles states, oh, Mr. Edwards says that there's hard times everywhere. There are plenty of men lined up waiting for just one job. Which, that doesn't seem unusual. And he concludes that Mr. Edwards has a plan and they'll talk about it at the dinner time. In the meanwhile, he's got to get busy to cover that wagon and change into some dry clothes. We cut to the Sanderson estate. Dinner is served with a sight of thunder and lightning. Grace mentions how Mr. Edwards looks like he hasn't eaten anything in a really long time. Mr. Edwards, I ate shadow soup and rabbit track stew their snickers from the kids. He then shares an anecdote about his paydays in Mankato, how he would buy a piece of meat and end up making a stew. However, the stew would attract all of his co-workers, and he would then be forced to share his meal. Charles then inquires, well, what's your plan? And Mr. Edwards starts about how times are rough, men are scourging, sleeping in doorways, begging for work, food, both. Grace stops him and has the children leave the table. This is not children conversation. Carl tries to stay. He wants to hear what's going on. And Grace, you do as you're told. Carl, most likely rolling his eyes, 
gets up and leaves the table. Mr. Edwards then continues that he found a bit of interesting information in a recent newspaper, the Deadwood Chronicles, and he hands it over to Charles. Bottom corner. Charles. Gold news? Grace, you're not thinking of going on a gold rush. And while those might be Grace's first impressions, my first thought is, Mr. Edwards is finally reading. He even continues that we need to make some money. So why not take a real chance by heading out? Meanwhile, Grace is not having it, and she excuses herself from the table to start cleaning up the dishes. Caroline gets up to help. Charles seems half swayed by this, and Mr. Edwards states, Well, we gotta see what happens. If we stay here, we just watch the water rise, and we'll be in the same position as if we'd never left. If we go, there might be a chance. Charles continues by saying how the newspaper is really only mentioning success stories. And for every single successful story, there is about a hundred unsuccessful stories behind it. Mr. Edwards, eh, just think about it. Caroline has come into a close-up, and it looks as though she's ready to say something, but no. We cut back to Plum Creek, and Charles is at the table reading that news story and the thunder is continuing to clap outside. Caroline comes out. I thought you were heading to bed. And she has a seat next to Charles. You must have that article memorized by heart now. Charles, continuing to look at the paper, states, The odds of finding anything is a thousand to one. It's crazy to make a 400-mile trip. Caroline looks like she's ready to say, Let's go! But instead, she says, well, if it's so crazy, why are you staying up half the night reading about it? As the rain continues to fall for the last two months, both Charles and Caroline complain about the rain. But then Caroline states, well, I hope wherever we settle has a good school. I hate the girls to fall behind. Charles, huh? What? Caroline states, Charles Ingalls, if you think I'm going to have you underfoot for the next six months, you have another thing coming. Charles is now all wide-eyed, but, but 400 miles. Caroline, we've done that before. We took a chance then, and we can take a chance now. And I can see you're dying to go. Confess. And yes, Charles does confess he wants to go. And I just have to wonder why the girls aren't up at this time, because this is not a hushed conversation. And then, WTF, there's a knock at the door. And answering it, Mr. Edwards yells out, Ah, you couldn't sleep either, could you? I had to come over and tell you. Grace said, we're going! Charles looks over to Caroline, and she says yes. Charles, looking at Mr. Edwards, then states, we're going too. We cut to two covered wagons loading supplies at the mercantile. As those supplies are finished being loaded, Charles thanks Mr. Olson for checking in on the house on occasion while they are gone. Mr. Olson's final words are, take care and write if you hit it big and may God be with you. And those wagons pull away and cool.
we cut to a map. However, I do have to point out, even this map is selling the lie of where Sleepy Eye really is located. P.S. Deadwood is actually a really cool little town. P.P.S. They do not take the most direct route on getting there. Even halfway to their destination, it is still raining. People are eating suppers inside their wagon, and we pan down to Jack eating under the wagon. This is a really long take. And then immediately, we cut to a 180. Dry fields, blue skies. It's a nice transition, actually. And Charles hops out of the wagon and announces, It stopped raining! What? No one could tell that from inside the wagon? Everyone gets out, and they all celebrate by praying. And the trip continues. We are only 14 minutes into this episode, and I can already count at least three lengthy takes that could have been edited down. But the next thing we know, we arrive at Deadwood. Cattle is everywhere. There's a train line going through the center of town. The closed captions tell us that there is saloon music playing, and we can also see the sex workers out on the balcony. Grace, Isaiah, what kind of place is this? And Mr. Edwards, oh, now, Grace, there's nothing wrong with folks having a little fun. Grace watches as two of these ladies escort a man outside and down a flight of stairs. He whoops and fires a pistol into the air. Grace, you call this fun? Mr. Edwards, eh, I guess not. I guess they're not really having fun. Caroline looks up at the saloon and at those sex workers, and they are giving the eye to Charles. And sex workers, or not, we're all giving the eye to Charles. Did we come all the way out here for this? Charles attests that they did not, and in fact informs Caroline that all of the gold claims are located outside of the town. I just have to say that there are so many stores here in Deadwood. And eventually the wagons stop, Charles and Mr. Edwards hitch up the team, and they head to the claim office. Caroline mentions how her and Grace are going to head over to the general store to pick up some supplies. Grace looks a little reluctant to leave her wagon. But when she does, her and Caroline instruct the children not to leave, to stay put right where they are. No exploring. They're both really talking to Carl at this time. With Caroline and Grace at a scene, we then hear, Hey, Sonny, from overhead. Those sex workers are calling down to Carl to tease him. And Carl, just like, ugh, Johnny Johnson, immediately is transfixed. And his words, Carl's, gee whiz. We cut back over to Caroline and Grace. Caroline states that they are almost out of flour, and Grace says that they are almost out of coffee. Isaiah says if I make the coffee any weaker, he's going to throw in some axle grease just for color. And as these two wives approach the general store, wow. Prices are high out here in Deadwood. It's $15 for a sack of flour. Just then, proprietor of the store comes out. And we are introduced to Grady Jennings. And he informs 
Grace, and Caroline that he has the best inventory in town. Grace then interjects, well, you also have the highest prices. $15 for 50 pounds of flour? And Grady Jennings lets them know that that's actually a 30-pound bag of flour. And not to wait too long because he guarantees them that all of his stock will be gone by tomorrow. They decide against purchasing anything and leave. Meanwhile, over at the claim office, there are no claims available near that gold site. That's what happens in a rush. The employee at the claim office does have a little sympathy for Charles and Mr. Edwards and tells them of another place, Newton, about 50 more miles away. There haven't been any big strikes, but there has been some color showing up in the ground. The two of them leave the office. Leaving the claim office, Mr. Edwards and Charles make the decision that what's another 50 miles? And while heading back to the wagons, they do pass by that saloon, and Mr. Edwards stops for a moment, and he says he has an idea. And Charles, looking at his friend, and then looking at the saloon, says, if your idea involves heading into there, there's nothing but bad ideas in there. Mr. Edwards' plan is he does have a little side money of his own, and he believes that he can actually try to double it by playing some poker. He guarantees Charles that it will take 10 minutes or less, and Charles says, well, you could probably lose it all in 10 minutes or less. Mr. Edwards is still determined to try to make some additional funds in the saloon. Charles says go right ahead. He's going to head back to the wagon, and he'll inform Grace where he is at. That stops Mr. Edwards right in his tracks, and he turns and follows Charles. Back at the wagon, Charles shares news with Caroline about heading on out to Newton, 50 more miles, and Caroline flatly states, I don't care. As long as we are far away from here, she then shares the story about the $15 for the 30-pound bag of flour. With the wagons loaded, they all head out of Deadwood, and they decide that they will camp a little ways outside of the city for the evening before continuing on to Newton. And we get a nice silhouette of that wagon riding in front of the sunset. Sadly, the Airstream slash jet trail in the sky ruins it. We cut to late night at that camping site. Grace, who is sleeping under a wagon, rolls over and wakes up to find Mr. Edwards is no longer in bed. And she gets up and starts to look around for him. But she is having no luck whatsoever, and eventually she wakes up Charles. He's gone. And it's after midnight. An annoyed Charles gets up because he has an idea exactly where Mr. Edwards is at. Apparently, they didn't camp far enough away because we are back at the saloon. And it is very, very rowdy outside. There's lots of gentlemen letting off lots of gunfire. It's a busy night. And inside, it's a full blown casino in the saloon. 
we are introduced to Dolly. I have no idea why. She's in charge of the Wheel of Fortune game and convinces an elderly gentleman named Darby to play. However, we come to find out that Dolly controls the mechanics of the spinning wheel because she can stop it at any time with a simple lever that she places her foot on. So this place should not be trusted. Darby, the older, angry gentleman who is now out a few dollars, decides to leave. And that's when he passes by Mr. Edwards. And he is busy at a poker table. And he announces that this is his last round of poker. And anyone who wants revenge should be dealt in right now. And wow, we get to see Mr. Edwards at work. And he knows his tactics when it comes to playing poker. And he wins the entire pool. Mr. Edwards thanks the dealer and heads out. However, the dealer is not happy and he sends two goons out the back door after Mr. Edwards. And sadly, they do catch up with Mr. Edwards and beat him and rob him. However, while that is happening in the alley, Charles is arriving inside the saloon and he's asking the bartender about Mr. Edwards. And the bartender, nope, I haven't seen the man you have just described. Charles then steps outside and looking around just a little bit more, that is when he hears a loud moan and comes to find Mr. Edwards behind a few broken down crates and probably some trash. Mr. Edwards claims it was five men and they went back inside and he is almost ready to go back inside to get his money back, but he also can't stand up too well. So Charles decides that they're just going to cut their losses and head back to the camp. En route back to the camp, Mr. Edwards inquires, how did they know he was gone? And Charles simply says one word, grace. Mr. Edwards, I'd rather face those five men again instead of grace. And back at the camp, Caroline is working on bandaging up Mr. Edwards' left hand. Meanwhile, Grace is sitting in the foreground in a profile in silence. Caroline finishes, and Charles states, We'll see you in the morning. Again, they're sleeping outside under wagons. Like it or not, Charles and Caroline are still a part of this conversation. Grace is fuming. By remaining silent as Mr. Edwards tries to apologize and promising that this will not happen again. You've promised this before. Mr. Edwards proclaims that this time was different. He wasn't doing it for fun. That's just an excuse. You haven't changed. And then Mr. Edwards asks the big question. Well, why did you marry me in the first place if you wanted me to change? Why didn't you end up and marrying somebody who is already the way you want me to be? Grace. Because I fell in love with you, that's why. Mr. Edwards starts to grin, and that's when Grace turns to face him, and she smiles and says, Now go to sleep. And with a smile on his face, Mr. Edwards states, As you wish. Actually, no, he just simply says, Yes, my dear. We cut to the next day. And those wagons are on the move and they are stopping by a watering hole. And there are two wagons 
already there. One of the wagons contains an Italian family, because the closed caption says the man speaks with an Italian accent. The two heads of the family head over and talk with Charles and Caroline, and we are introduced to Ben Griffin and his family, and the Delano's family. The wife is Maria, and the son's name is Sam. We haven't found out Mr. Delano's name just yet, but I would love it if he would stop and say, It's me, Mario! Mr. Griffin and Mr. Delano both mention how Charles's wagon is making a little extra squeaky sound. Charles states that he was thinking about getting some axle grease in Deadwood, but it just kind of skipped his mind. That's when Mr. Delano states that him and Mr. Griffin will go ahead and work on that wagon wheel. Mr. Griffin says he was a wheelwright back home where he came from. The best in four counties, he states. And while that is all taking place, Mrs. Delano will cook up some food for everyone. They also decide that they will all head into Newton together the next day. So with good company, some good food, and some good times, this group travels together into Newton. And, well, Newton is up and coming. It's smaller and quieter than Deadwood, but it's still something. And one of the first people who greets our traveling caravan is a young reverend. Caroline, uh, I am so happy to see a reverend. He informs the group that they have services on Sundays and Wednesdays. He wants them to come meet the community. And apparently, now there are enough kids for Sunday school. The reverend also informs the caravan that the owner of the general store can tell you more information in regards to who found what, where. And speaking of, at that general store, the prices are cheaper than Walnut Grove's. We're also informed that they'll be leaving Newton and heading five more miles out to Shadow Creek, because there's some possible color in the sandbars. Charles mentions a book on mining that he has read, and I just have to wonder if that was the same book that Laura had read. As everyone piles back into their wagons, the young reverend comes out to say goodbye, and Charles, from his seat, says, well, say a little prayer for us, to the reverend, who retorts, I doubt the good Lord spends much time helping us look for gold, but I will say one for your health and happiness. Why didn't he just say that? And once again, they are off, this time to Shadow Creek. And at Shadow Creek, they are setting up little claims along the creek, and we're informed, don't worry, there's going to be plenty to do. Mary's helping Mr. Edwards put a notice into a small jar, stating that this claim belongs to Grace Edwards Snyder. Mary then wonders, well, what happens when you find money on Grace's claim? And that's when Mr. Edwards says, I guess I'll have to fess up and say I married her for her money. Charles and Mr. Edwards are ready to start building some filtration systems to help filter out the water, the sand, and the gold, and they leave Carl and Laura to build a rock pile for another claim. However, this is not sitting well with Carl. It's not fair. 
Grown-ups can have their own claim. Laura, yeah, it's just like going to school and washing behind your ears. You have to be old enough to decide for yourself. From those claims to that campout, we cut to the Edwards and Ingalls campout, and they are busy constructing, like I said, those filtration systems. And this is when Mr. Griffin and Mr. Delano stop by with a chunk of venison, which is apparently enough for everyone. Grace and Caroline in the background then state that it's their turn to prepare this meal. Charles, looking at Mr. Delano, don't argue with them. And Mr. Delano then claims that he'll bring his concertina and we'll have food, we'll have vino, and we'll have musica. And we cut to that concertina being played. And my one thought is, where's DJ Ingalls with his fiddle? Oh, and I also have to wonder, who drank the vino? All of this is another really long take. And from there, let the prospecting begin. We find Laura looking rather familiar with her gold pan. It's like she's done this before. And she's listening to Carl complain. Mary leaves them and to go ask how Charles is doing. And he's busy loading up the sand into the shifter. He then assigns Mary to watch over that as he goes to help out Mr. Edwards, who is called for help. And working on panning for gold, Laura states, we're never going to get rich. Carl, be patient, which is a very odd thing to hear from Carl. Laura states, Pa said kids aren't supposed to be patient. It's not natural. However, bored, Laura convinces Carl to follow her as they head on downstream. Carl, oddly being the voice of reason for change, states that we need to stay on our own claim. Laura, we'll just go a little ways. And they get up and they walk downstream past Mr. Edwards and Charles. Carl, after a little bit of walking, then states, I thought you said we were going to go a little ways. Laura, well, we've come this far. We might as well keep going. And at this time, Laura then prays for rain. Carl is super confused. Until Laura explains, yeah, if there's rain, we'll have a rainbow. And there is gold at the end of the rainbow. That's not true, Laura, and you should know that. Carl then stops and says he's going to check out the shoreline here. And as soon as he sticks his pan into the water, Laura turns and points and says, Is that what I think it is? Carl turns to look at what Laura is pointing at. And dear listeners, it's an entrance to a mine. Then Carl inquires, What is that? Facepalm. We all know Carl has gone off and played in mines before. Check out Little Girl Lost at the beginning of this season. Now being fully aware of what it is, Carl then states that we're not supposed to be in there. It could be somebody else's claim. Which again, that has never stopped you before, Carl. Carl tries multiple times to prevent Laura from heading inside. He actually loses, and Laura goes in. And just then... Carl spots a cabin on the other side of the creek. I told you, somebody does live here. Laura, 
with an eye roll. Nobody's been here for a long time. You see how old that cabin is? But in fact, what does happen is Laura comes up with an idea. We could fix that place up and it could be our playhouse. But Laura is very wrong because we cut to a POV point of view shot from inside the cabin looking out at Laura and Carl crossing the creek. We also get some labored breathing as described in the closed captions. And once Carl and Laura have made their way across the creek, they go up to the house. Carl's a little nervous and that's when Laura points out in front of the house there's a basket of apples. And looking around, they decide to take one apiece. And whoa, we do get a jump scare as a man pops out from the window. Is really all he does. Carl leads the way and Laura is following right behind him until she then stops, turns to the man and says, you shouldn't scare people like that. The man continues to yell, And this is when Carl and Laura then throw those apples back at the man in defense. The man catches all of these apples, and then he starts to laugh out loud. Laura, confused, what's so funny? And the man responds that he's happy to have his apples back. After the laughing subsides, this man then states, if you had said please, I would have given you both an apple. Laura and Carl, having a very Adam and Eve moment right now, head up to the man and we find out his name is Zachariah. He then inquires who the two of them are, besides apple thieves. And of course, Laura and Carl. And they state that they are in the area with their family mining for gold. And what is the purpose of Zachariah and Laura and Carl actually meeting? Well, this is when Zachariah spills the tea. It started again. The gold fever. And he points to the mine. And we are informed that there was a gold rush in the area 20 years ago. Zachariah relays a cautionary tale about greed, hate, sorrow. But we don't really get any details, just those words. And Zachariah concludes with the sentiment that gold changes good people. He then tells Laura and Carl that the basket of apples are always here. He then heads into the cabin. We then hear Mary yelling out for Carl and Laura. The two of them run off to find Mary, and we also hear the concertina. It's a rather jubble sound, and shut up, they found gold. And everyone is celebrating in and around the creek. Except for Mr. Griffin, who stays neutral in his expression. During this, yet again, long take of the celebration. And with that, that is about 45 minutes into this episode, which is on par for just a standard episode of Little House. So we're going to take our break in this long run episode at this time. 
and it seems like a nice break. We got a warning from some man in the area. We've been introduced to two additional families that somehow might play into the bigger scheme of things in the second part of this long-run episode. Will we get to see how gold does change good people? Possibly. But you'll have to find out next week on the final episode of From Plum Creek with Love, Season 3. And although this is a long-run episode, I will be saving my review and rating for the next podcast. However, I do have a little bit of trivia to go ahead and share. And again, I'm pulling mm, pretty much all of this information from Caroline Fraser's Prairie Fires book. In 1876, when Laura was nine, her family did leave Walnut Grove. They did head 200 miles, but they didn't go west. In fact, they went east to Burr Oak, Iowa. So it it is a little fitting that in this episode, the Ingalls leave Walnut Grove. And there is particular reason why these tween years aren't brought up in the book at all. In fact, we get a time jump from on the banks of Plum Creek to on the shores of Silver Lake. A four-year time jump. Some things the Ingalls girls were exposed to in Burr Oak were public drunkenness, wife-beating, corporal punishment, measles. However, there is no mention of sex workers. That's a new addition for Deadwood. And speaking of Deadwood, yes, Deadwood was a gold mining town, having its peak in between 1976 and 77, but it was on the outskirts of civilization. So there was pretty much, yeah, a lawless town where anything goes. So I'm actually kind of happy that this is included in this episode, or the story anyway. Another interesting thing is that there isn't a Newton, South Dakota, but there is a Newton Hills State Park on the eastern side of South Dakota. However, it is also interesting to note that there is a Shadow Creek located outside of Deadwood, South Dakota. In fact, according to the website thedigging.com, Shadow Creek is located in Pennington County, South Dakota. And according to the website, it is a closed mining claim. I feel as though the biggest takeaway from all this trivia, however, is simply how it does, in a sense, kind of mirror the real-life Laura Ingalls Wilder's own departure from Walnut Grove. And in this episode, we know that their plan is to head back to Walnut Grove because they tell Mr. Olson to check in on the house on occasion. However, I am more intrigued about Zachariah's warning. And how does that actually affect Mr. Griffin, Ben Griffin? Because he seemed to be the only one who wasn't happy when gold was found. Are we going to get more of the Reverend in Newton? And chances are... You probably already know, dear listeners, what is going to happen because you might have watched this episode before. However, for me, it's my first time, so I am left on the edge of my couch. So, again, not really going into final rating of this episode because it's not done. But I will say, these are just some of my thoughts and feelings about this first half of the episode. And as always, I wouldn't mind hearing any thoughts or feelings you have about this episode, any previous episode or season, from Plum Creek with Love at gmail.com, as well as the Instagram account. 
So come back next week for the second half of this long run episode, as well as, of course, my end of season thoughts and feelings and awards. So with that, we come to the end of another episode of From Plum Creek with Love, a little house on the prairie podcast. I'm still your host, John Hernandez. And until next time, take care.